column, Métis Cree lawyer and passionate promoter of trauma-informed lawyering. Welcome back to the Trauma-Informed Lawyer Podcast, folks, season two. I believe that law schools and bar courses are missing a critical competency requirement in their curriculum, trauma-informed lawyering. Becoming a trauma-informed lawyer will, among other things, challenge you to critically reflect on your personal behaviors, beliefs, and biases, call on you to positively transform the way you approach advocacy, guide your practice to avoid doing further harm to others, and ask that you commit to remaining open to learn new and old knowledge you didn't know you needed before beginning your career. Your education starts right here right now. Just a quick shout out to the Canadian Bar Association for supporting season one of my podcast before I even released episode one. They were all in and I just want to say thank you CBA for all of your support. And I now want to give a shout out to the BC Law Foundation. The BC Law Foundation has generously offered to cover the transcripts for season two of the Trauma Informed Lawyer podcast. So to them, my hands go up. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Maria. Welcome to the Trauma Informed Lawyer Podcast. I don't think I can really do justice to sharing with our listeners exactly who you are and what your history has been in this legal profession. So why don't you tell us about yourself, Maria? Well, okay. Where can I start? I guess I can say that I'm a family lawyer. primarily. Um, I've been practicing for almost 16 years. I started my articles at Legal Aid. Um, Knew I wanted to do family law. Not sure really why I wanted to do family law. I never uh, um, thought that this would be the career for me, never in a million years. Actually, I started my undergrad uh, studies in, you know, art history and classical languages and archaeology and uh, did grad studies. Um, so family law was never something on my, my radar. But um, in law school, um, uh, taking family law as a mandatory class at the time, I was really drawn to it. I was really drawn to the uh, immediacy of it, the the realness of it, the fact that the law impacts real people. And I was drawn to the idea of articling um, for a community that I really didn't know much about um, based on my upbringing and providing services. So I kind of went into it not really knowing what to expect. Um, I definitely knew that I didn't want to be a solicitor or do that kind of work. Which I find really funny because I'm terrified of public speaking. The idea of being in court terrified me to no end. And any of the projects we had to do in law school, like any moot, I was, it caused me such anxiety. And yet somehow I knew it's what I wanted to do. So um, here I am. <laughs> here I am 16 years later, um, one of two principals of a family law boutique in Winnipeg. Uh, seven lawyers, um, all women-led, and we provide all sorts of um, family law services, everything from mediation to collaborative to litigation. I can totally relate to that. I was terrified of public speaking in law school, like terrified. I would rather have someone pull out my fingernails and have yeah. me speak out loud. Yeah. And then I became a, um, a crown prosecutor and 
if someone had told me in law school, this is what you're going to do, I would have been like, absolutely not. I had zero interest in criminal law. And of course, I had zero interest in public speaking. So it's interesting, the things that draw us in, and we kind of find um, that we maybe have gifts and skills in areas that we maybe had never, ever considered, but for taking the leap, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely my experience. Um, it's, you know, what I like about what we do and why I keep doing this is because it's those connections with, with people. Um, you know, lots of, I think, young lawyers would say, oh, I'd like to help people. And, and, and you know, I, I think about that a lot. And we do a lot more than help people. And that's not our, our, our job. That's not the sole function of what we do. It's, it's more than that. Um, but it's an opportunity, right, to connect and navigate. And it's a complex um, system. It's complex time. People who are going through really challenging things. I, I feel sometimes need a guide, right? And, and that's how I see myself and my role at times as a family lawyer is a guide. Mm -hmm. um, and that fits for me. Did you learn about trauma at all in law school? Because I imagine it came to your door on a regular basis when you got into family law practice. I, I'm, I'm thinking back and, and I'm stalling because I, I, you know, I'd like to think that we were prepared for something and I want to give credit where it's due. What I recall about the kind of training we received was to memo your files, to take notes, to be very careful in the case the client were to complain to the law society. It was more of a, you know, uh, CYA type of um, instruction. And certainly in my articles as well, you know, obviously um, dealing with the population where there are higher rates of complaints and family law, first of all, is a area of law where you'll find more complaints about services being provided than other areas. But um, it was very reactive if I were to describe it, I learned about the concept of um, vicarious trauma or secondary trauma only in the context. And it's only recently, Myrna, that, that I kind of understand now what vicarious trauma really is and what it means to every lawyer who practices um, family law and other people law. Um, I understood only though at that time to be, you know, what crown prosecutors experience and judges who are seeing crime scene files and really disturbing images and you know child exploitation and those really ugly things and I thought well you know I, I don't see those terrible ugly things therefore you know what do I have to complain about since I was injured um, in the summer of 2015 I spent a lot of time trying to understand one of the reasons I try to understand is because I came back to family law after being injured for doing what I, for doing my job, for being a family lawyer. And I knew I wanted to come back to family law, but I also couldn't really understand why people were telling me, why would you come back to this? You know, like this was such a trap and I was having a hard time reconciling that. And so that's when I started to really think about what, what trauma is and why lawyers aren't happy doing what they're doing or feeling that somehow 
in some ways, what happened to me was inevitable in, in this world that were um, other people's worlds that we're kind of delving into. Well, before we get into talking about what you experienced, let me ask you this. So given what you were uh, taught in law school and maybe what was missing, how was your experience working with clients who showed up with a lot of maybe emotional distress? You said earlier something about, you know, family law being really emotional. And that's what I hear all, you know, practitioner, I could never do that because it's so emotional. And, you know, like emotion's bad, right? <laughs> and that's what's really interesting in a way that that we equate emotion with bad. And that's, that's problematic. And even I've, what I've heard you talk about during your podcast, and yeah, I run away from people who cry and get mad. That's right. <laughs> I've already disclosed I, it. <laughs> yeah, no, I remember you saying that. And, and, and I think that, um, you know, it, it, it's a challenging thing because we all respond to emotion very differently. But I also think that not every client presents emotionally. I mean, I think those are the easy ones, right? I think that you're really visibly upset about something. So let's just deal with that. Let's, let's, let's talk. Let's, and, and, you know, uh, through your podcasts and your workshops, learning how to allow a person to express and experience what they need to express. But what I worry about are the clients where um, they aren't emotional, um, but they are bearing um, significant, be it trauma, anxiety, fear, worries about how this is going to look, what, what are they going to expect? And, you know, I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious to say that, you know, no two clients are the same when they walk in the door. And so, in some respects, the, the upset clients, the ones who are um, experiencing emotional like upheaval are the ones where we as a firm and me and, and my practice, I know that they need to, to be able to be in a place of good judgment to do anything, to be able to instruct me. And so it means that we need some mental health supports and professional supports. And that's a conversation I have early on with someone who's in distress. Like you're not going to be able to instruct me. Um, you're you're going to have to be coming at this from a place where um, you're confident in the decision and you feel empowered when we're going to negotiate. So, um, so when, when people come to me in a heightened state of emotion, well, first of all, we unpack and figure out what kind of supports they need, whether it's family, friends, or, or professional supports. I worry about the people, I think about domestic violence and many of the cases that I've seen um, where people have experienced domestic violence in their relationships so continuously and chronically that they're so numb to it and they don't complain. They don't even want to address it because it's such a reality for them. Um, I remember a client in particular who like the facts were atrocious, atrocious. She went to um, obtain a protection order by herself and was denied, you know, reading her transcript. She was just very matter of fact. She wasn't emotional. She was kind of underplaying it and it wasn't convincing. And yet it was such a dangerous situation. We were able then to, to, to get her the protection she needed, but it took our advocacy and us to be able to, translate her experience to get her the protection she needed. So 
I worry a lot about the people who are presenting who are experiencing trauma and through your work, you know, how it how it's expressed in different places. They can be difficult on certain things, but it could be because there's underlying things. And, and I'm finding those are the more challenging cases to um, assess and to plan for. You've said some really important things uh, about recognizing like the distress that some folks are going through and ensuring that they have supports in place so that they can navigate a process where uh, they are really equipped to be able to give instructions to and to engage in any negotiation, et cetera. I think that has such broad application to so many areas of law, not just family law. So I love that you identified that. I also love that you identified the piece around those who do not show up with any emotion where they're flat, they're silent, where you would think they'd be blowing up right now, or they would be uh, exhibiting signs of trauma or grief or distress or fear. And there's just nothing because that is the flip side of it. And that tends to indicate that there is a lot going on, like way more than what meets the eye. And so I love that you raise that because that is the other piece that we ought to be thinking about as lawyers is, hmm, what what is going on here that we're not seeing sort of the kind of responses that we would expect at this point? And I'm ashamed to admit that um, I think about you, not if someone wants to cry, you want to run out of the room. I'm ashamed to think about the times, you know, before I become uh, become more educated about trauma, um, about the number of times that I was able to avoid those conversations with clients because not directly relevant to the issue of child support, say, right? Not directly relevant to the issue of this. So do we really need to go around and talk about what a bully, what a jerk, what a what a terrible experience client had in, in, in any kind of negotiation with the other side during the marriage and, you know, relying on the fact that, okay, things are different now. She's got me. So, you know, we don't have to go there. I am ashamed about not having given the space to the to people to talk about those things. Um, but not knowing how not being equipped for it and taking on that trauma too I think I can be forgiven as many of us can because what I've learned and what we see is that if you're not prepared for it, um, the burdens that you can take on can do way more damage, you know, and then sidestepping that conversation to avoid it because you don't know how to assess or accept it or use it um, is, is not helpful to, to use lawyer and, and certainly not helpful to the client. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I like to think, when we know better, we do better. And I mean, I was the same way before I knew what I was doing, before I became conscious of the ways in which my um, traumas or triggers or just being uncomfortable in certain scenarios or energies uh, was interfering with my ability to connect with people and really serve them in a good way. I would just walk out. I would just I would end interviews, I would because I was uncomfortable. But once I learned, okay, wait a second, I need to stop getting in my own way, find out some coping mechanisms and get real about why I'm triggered, what's triggering me, and how do I ride that out so that I don't walk out on this client or this witness when they need me to actually just be present and witness whatever it is that I'm witnessing. 
and just get out of my own way. So I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hopeful that this podcast is doing some of that, helping folks recognize the ways in which they get in their own way and then mm -hmm. learning new techniques to overcome that so that they can serve people in a way that doesn't either feel like betrayal or uh, feel triggering or re-traumatizing. And we could get into a whole conversation about that, but we only have so much time. And I want to talk to you about so many other things, including you had a big life-changing event happen to you uh, by virtue of your work. Certainly a day in Winnipeg that um, a lot of people remember just because of the way that what happened happened and, and, and the, the, um, the way the city sort of stood still for a while because of the danger, I unknowingly detonated a bomb that was in a, a voice recording recorder, like a dictator, um, in my office, actually in the space, this the space that I'm in. And, you know, for those who don't, who are listening, don't know what happened to me, I detonated um, a bomb and it was, the man who did it was convicted in uh, 2018, I believe of attempted murder, I think it was three or four charges, myself, um, his ex-wife, who was my client, and um, his own lawyer, um, who was acting for him. He had sent bombs to my office, to his ex-wife, and to his former lawyer's office. And um, it was over the July long weekend, and I was the only one dedicated lawyer that I am who actually showed up their office that day, and I opened my mail. and. As a result, um, those other packages that had bombs in them were intercepted by the police and nobody else was, was hurt. Um, so I've talked to lawyers about my recovery um, and facing adversity. And when I was first approached by a group of lawyers who wanted me to talk about this, about coming back to work, it was on the topic of facing adversity and, and being resilient. Um, a lot of people have commented that I must possess some very extraordinary resilience to have something like that happen to me and want to come back to work in this area of law, which can be fraught on a good day, right, as we said before, um, but also risky, apparently, and, 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 and higher risk than other areas and back in the same office in the same space. So when I, I started preparing to talk about um, resilience and how was it that I could come back to work and wanted to come back to work, I knew that the story started a bit earlier um, than that for me. And um, I was always troubled, Myrna, by people saying things to me like, you know, very, um, very gracious things, but very praising me for being so strong, for being so resilient, for having this kind of strength that they could never, I, if, if this happened to me, I would still be, there's no way I could get out of bed. You know, things like that were predominantly the kinds of things that I heard. And lawyers, I remember one lawyer in particular said to me, gosh, you know, you had a way out of this, you know, like a ticket out of practice. Why would you want to come back? And that really um, startled me um, and upset me because, 
you know, we always talk about family law being really er difficult area to practice in and day-to-day -day needy clients, all of that. But it occurred to me that, you know, we got lawyers who are so unhappy with where they are that they view that, you know, that I had kind of like honorable discharge from the permission for the profession, you know, like no one would think any worse of you if you decided to like pack it in. And that really got me thinking about it and um, why it is we're still kind of feeling stuck doing what we're doing and feeling like we're trapped. I want to go back to the, that day um, that you detonated that bomb without actually going through all of like reliving that trauma uh, based on an earlier conversation you and I had, that wasn't the only loss that you experienced that day or life, life altering um, experience that you had mm -hmm. that day. Can we talk about the other thing that also happened that day? Yeah. So uh, when I was asked to talk about my recovery and facing adversity, I knew that I couldn't tell the story of what happened and why I could come back without, first of all, just like figuring out like, so what, what makes me different if I am different, if I believe these people who said to me, I couldn't do what you're doing. So, so what is it that I was doing or what, what is it about me? I'm very ordinary. I'm really no one quite, I'm terrified public speaking as we established already. I'm all these things. And, and yet um, what is bringing me back to do this? Um, and it's, I realized that I had for at least a year and some before I was injured embarked on a journey of needing to understand what was going on for me and my profession was happening to family lawyers. And it was a result of a real personal experience I'll describe for you because I have spoken about it and I have permission to share about it. Um, but I worked very, very hard in the year preceding my injuries to address my weaknesses, my fears, my vulnerabilities, um, to acknowledge that I had probably um, lost sight of what I was doing and why I was doing it, why I was, I was burning out, I was overworked, I was focused only on my practice. I was focused only on the files. I was losing sight of some, you know, me as a person. And so when you're taken away from your work, when you're taken away from that, that has occupied a lot of your life and space in a, for a long time, you come head to head with, okay, well, what am I without what I do, right? Um, so I had been seeing a therapist for um, regularly um, for the year and a half prior to my injuries. Um, and that singular um, decision to see someone and give myself space to focus on me and gain insights, um, I think for me is one of the things that prepared me for what happened and how I was able to um, survive in, 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 a, in a very real way. When I was injured, Myrna, I remember feeling very calm 
collected and measured. It's, it's a, it's, it, it is a crazy thing to, to say and think about now, but in the moments when it happened, um, I remember just feeling overwhelmed and, and kind of like plunged underwater. The world was spinning and I knew what happened. I, I just remember thinking how impossible it was. And yet somehow I was like, okay, take a deep breath. One thing at a time. There's no need to panic if I panic. And I, and I was going through these very like regimented sort of check self check-ins, you know? Okay, I can see that, that's a good thing. It's blurry, but that's okay. Um, I can talk, I, I, my tongue's okay. Okay, I can probably talk, you know? Um, I had shrapnel all through my face. I remember thinking I could feel it and, and, and I'm like, okay, that, that's no good. But it somehow grounded me because I'm like, okay, this is serious. I need to get help. I need to get out my door. And, and I was able to not lose my mind, not lose control. And, and in therapy, I learned a lot about managing pieces of insurmountable problems one piece at a time, right? meditation, controlling intrusive thoughts, all these things that we all know now to be important self-care um, exercises, particularly when you're dealing with your files, your children, elder care, your colleagues, lawyers on their side, like those are all techniques that help you day to day, but um, remarkably, remarkably, they help you survive a crisis. Um, that's an interesting thing that you described, Maria, because I've been in a couple motor vehicle accidents and, and very serious ones. And one was a motorcycle accident. And my brain did that exact same thing. Immediately, I was very, very calm and checking in about yeah. whether I could get the bike off of me, whether I could move, do I smell gas? Like it right. was strange how right. my brain suddenly kicked into this weird place. Yeah. And isn't it that the most um, empowering thing to think that you can trust yourself to keep it together, you know, and the people who say to me, I would never, but like, like, it seems, and you know, when you, when you hear about things that happen to other people, so um, unbelievable, right. And so challenging, but you have the strength, right. To, to, and, and your, your, your mind and your body kicks in to, to protect yourself. And knowing that, that, my, that I kicked in and I was there for me when I needed me um, is an extremely important thing that I've learned in terms of anything that I face going forward. Um, anything that causes me anxiety or fear or anything that might not be completely my control. Feeling that I can trust myself to to take care of myself is, is, is really quite an important um, lesson from it. It's such a powerful thing. Oh my goodness. And I think it's such a powerful and important thing to share with our listeners today mm -hmm. because um, I know that there are so many times that we go through life and things happen and we start to question whether we can actually take care of ourselves. Right. And I think, you know, based on your experience, my experience, the answer is a resounding yes, because there's a part of you that will kick in and take over and will essentially communicate to you that we've got this and yeah. it's going to be okay. I got this. Yeah. Yeah. I, 
so in the why I started seeing a therapist was a result of me acknowledging that I wasn't okay to take care of myself. And that was a year and a half before. And it was a result of um, very, it's almost more difficult in some ways, Myrna, to talk about this part of my story than it is about getting, you know, I, but, but what, what happened that day on July 3rd in 2015, when I was injured, um, it was another bomb I, I've described it as, you know, the first of two bombs that I've survived. And that day that I came to the office on July 3rd, 2015 was the day that publicly, um, it was in the newspapers that morning, um, that my partner had been um, disbarred by the Law Society of Manitoba after a 30 year career in, in, in law, a partner at his firm, um, former president of the MBA and CBA. And I say all these things to emphasize as someone who's giving back to his community, who was a leader in the community, who it turns out was struggling in the practice of law for reasons that weren't related to competence, you know, and being a good trial lawyer or not, it, it related to the burdens of, of practice and the burdens of personal trauma and challenges um, in one's personal life and not addressing them, not acknowledging it, having no insight at losing, burning out, no judgment and that path that it can take one take a person down tragically. Um, so that morning, I actually had, was golfing with my friends on Friday mornings. We go really early and golf nine holes. And I, um, they're, they're, they're my, they're my really close supportive friends. And, and I knew that, I mean, the story was going to be out that morning and we talked about it on the golf course and we decided to go for breakfast because they wanted to be there for me. Um, and before they got to the restaurant, I picked up the newspaper that was at the restaurant and I saw the story, I read it and I was like, okay, okay. Okay, it's gonna be a tough day, but this is real. And it, and I drove to work and opened my mail and, and, and then everything just changed, right? But, um, you know, I talk about my partner and I both being two people in recovery when I was injured, um, because that was the end of the story for him. Um, but the year and a half before that, uh, actually, it was I guess two years now. So the dates sort of get a bit foggy. But um, he had been suspended from practice when, and and I remember Myrna. Like I, I remember when it happened. I remember us driving to work and he pulled the car over and he says, I have something to show you. And it was a letter from the law society. And it was a, you're, we're having a show cause hearing. You, you have to attend. And, you know, I, I think about that day a lot. Um, I think about the months that had gone by of his, you know, struggling with these issues that were going to catch up with him. You know, they always do. And yet he couldn't until we were actually physically on the road and getting close to our destination, he still couldn't talk about it with me. Never mind a peer support group or 
you know, here, here we are, seasoned lawyers who send people for therapy and psychological counseling all the time. And yet, and, and when we talked before about identity, I think for me, one of the things that's the biggest barrier that we have as lawyers is that this is ego that we have, um, that we're being fed as law students. And, you know, also this idea, this lawyer personality that we actually do very well <laughs> in, as lawyers because of our ego and our strong ego. Um, and yet it can be so damaging when it's, um, when you can't ask for help or you don't recognize that you need help or that you just feel that you have to solve it all yourself or that you can you, you figure a way out of it I, so anyways that that happened and 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 when that happened immediately i i, I knew I, I just couldn't i mean my practice was ready you know um a busy family lawyer um this is a person going through a crisis um we need an intervention immediately he was in a really bad place and I just said, I, 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 I cannot support myself, support him, support our family, you know, um, and practice law and be able to discharge my duty to my clients who really it's none of their, it's not their problem what I'm going through in my personal life, really, you know, that's not, not what they signed up for. And that started for me, um, a real awakening to the idea that um, there's the the um, what's the like, mental health issues, Myrna? I don't know. Um, is it lawyer wellness issues? Is it lawyer well being issues? Is it is it about um, recognizing we are very human, and if we don't address our own trauma we carry and bring in with us, you are on a real you're at real risk um to you know mess up your clients <laughs> lives and and files and 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 do such damage in, in my partner's case irreparably um and his i mean it, you don't come back from disbarment and 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 you know and i know and the lawyers who are listening know that there's nothing more shameful <laughs> nothing more and it feeds right into that like heart of it right what do law students like fear the most right they'll do something that you know they'll get disbarred right and it's this and the gossip you know that's the other thing about our profession do you my experience is that we're very judgmental of each other and i think judgment often comes from a place where you have a lot of issues with your own self-confidence but we talk about each other, we gossip about others as a sort of defense mechanism, I think, and this weird um, way of, you know, sort of not wa wa wanting to avoid the issue that there are weaknesses and that sometimes we, people we know, uh, can, 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 run in, can run aground. And those are the challenging ones, you know. From what I've seen, and I know that law societies are doing more for lawyer mental health and well-being now than they have before is that it's, you know, not these bad apple criminal type lawyers who are, you know, putting their hands in the cookie jar. It's it's lawyers who are struggling with their own financial matters, their personal lives, mental health issues, addictions. Those are all, all areas of 
that are just symptoms of not having integrity, you know, a kind of uh, holistic integrity, you know, and a wholeness. That is a lot to be experiencing in one day. Like one, that's a lifetime of loss and lessons and pain and trauma. Like that's just, wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I didn't know it then, really. Right. I, I didn't, I didn't know it. I, I, but if anybody thinks that somehow I was born resilient or that I was some kind of special person who they're wrong. I, I've worked very hard. I've had very humbling experiences in therapy and, and, and making space for myself and, and, and doing the work and, the, and gaining the insights about who I am and what my personality is and what works for me, what's not working for me. And I feel I'm a better lawyer now. I think I'm a better person now, having gone through all these things in a strange strange way. And, and there are many silver linings. Um, certainly my partner he's healthier now in so many ways, um, physically, even, you know, emotionally than he was before than I'd ever seen him before. I didn't even appreciate how burdened he was. And I didn't appreciate that he was being so affected by the work he was doing. But you know, you're this person with this profile, self created or not, whatever, you know, um, you, you get stuck in the place that you are. Um, and if you don't have insight about yourself or you're not challenged about yourself and your life, um, you, uh, before you know it, the workload doesn't stop, right? We get so pulled into each. So this is this conversation too around boundaries, right? We get kind of pulled into other people's conflicts and as family lawyers avoiding your own like issues, you can be the knight in shining armor for somebody else, right? And take them on and avoid having to deal with those uncomfortable things that are in our own lives. Think about what my, what my partner, what happened to him. I think that, and to anyone who, 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 who makes decisions that are poor judgments and, and things that you regret and wish you could do over, I think that we would never define a person on their worst moment that that we know that that's it's wrong and it's not accurate right but i think similarly that we should never define a person when they're at their best moment too right and i think about people who think that you know i just these people who ask me you know you're so resilient and and i and i i I share the story about our dark moments you know about our life because we (laughs) It's too easy to think, oh, here's Maria, who's this, you know, resili- this example of resilience and a woman who's got our shit together and got through these really challenging times. Because um, I don't want someone to think that I'm, that I can be defined by, because of coming back to work and, 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 and wanting to get back to my life, um, much less would I want anyone to ever think that they could define someone based on their worst day in their life right totally I mean there's so many things I want to talk to you about like when you told me earlier like based on the phone call that we had I think last December and you said that one of the things that you heard when you had decided to come back to practice was 
folks, uh, some folks saying, why would you do that? You've got your ticket, mm-hmm. like your honorable uh, discharge, whatever it is. Yeah. And I was really surprised that that was the response when you made the decision that you were coming back. And I think it goes to so much of how people are maybe unsatisfied or not doing well or struggling in all kinds of ways in this profession if that's their view that getting out is kind of the golden ticket that we're all striving for and I think that if we're any listeners are in that space they maybe need to think about why that is why why like when did they become of that view and why might they be of that view and what is possibly going on for them that they are of that view today because I'm sure it it never starts out that way in law school when we're about to become lawyers there's a lot of excitement around possibility I think it's easy though Myrna like to to educate us like to destigmatize preemptive therapeutic intervention and to talk about the fact that we should understand what boundaries are and transfer and the fact that we all respond differently to people and that the research shows um, now I know this now I understand this it took me going through all of this through hell and back to understand some really basic facts that professionals have known all along yet somehow in our ivory tower legal profession we really don't um, acknowledge but Anytime you're dealing with people who um, experience trauma and we have our own traumas we bring into every conversation and every interaction, there are things that you're teaching people how to do to protect themselves and to be better listeners for the the clients, but also to ensure that we don't fall to pieces when our shell, you know, our our integrity is bumped too many times, right? Um, That we can maintain that sense of wholeness. Um, and it's, it's, not, it's not that hard. It just involves having some, maybe some help. Um, sometimes it's peer support. Sometimes it's having language and vocabulary. Actually, that for me, one of the things that was very empowering for me was having a vocabulary around these concepts and understand like, oh, that, that's, it's a thing. <laughs> you know, what, I, what I'm feeling and experiencing, it's a thing transference and counter-transference. I know that it's in your materials from the Golden Eagle Society, but psychologists, therapists, social workers, doctors, this is something they're taught because they're interacting. It's relational work. Why on earth are we putting young lawyers in harm's way, not knowing their backgrounds and Certainly, like with more diverse backgrounds coming into legal practice too now, um, I, I think it's even more fraught because you're putting the person in, in front of a train and, and there's so much that law students have to put up with and experience um, that the last thing that I think anyone thinks is that they're going to be psychologically or emotionally damaged by doing these this career it, and, and I say it was easy in the sense that it's just education and it's providing resources and access to resources and a language for people to talk about this and I think by you talking about it by me talking about this and 
being vulnerable about it. I want people to know that most lawyers are like me. We, we can have these conversations and we can speak about these things once you start the conversation. I'm a believer in possibility. And I think that where we create space for these conversations, like the possibilities now become limitless. And I mean, there's so many things I want to ask you about Maria, like, but we only have so much time for this podcast episode. Um, I mean, like some of the things that come to mind were, were like all of the, training and um, adaptive coping mechanisms and processes that you had to put in place to come back to the practice, not only coming back to the practice uh, after having lost one of your hands through this um, act of violence, but also coming back to the practice without your partner being part of the profession. There's so much that you had to do to prepare yourself for your come back your return and I won't call it bounce back some people will call it that I won't call it resilience because some people are opposed to that but I know that any kind of comeback or return requires a lot of work and a lot of um, learning new adaptive strategies to to think about how you're going to be in a space that is a new normal for you and Mm -hmm. In that context, I want to chat a little bit about how did you, how did you prepare yourself for your return? And how did you feel when folks were beginning to identify you now as, you know, the lawyer who was blown up or the lawyer who had this experience, right? But now that this huge traumatic event has become now part of your identity. It's interesting. One of my um, friends, one of the decisions I had to make early was whether or not to talk about my experience, right? And whether to share the story of my comeback with others, knowing that now you all know more about the uh, recovery and return to work than than I think people might have understood at first. Um, And I know that some people struggle with, you know, the idea of being re-traumatized by these things and um, experiencing it. And I didn't find that that was um, true for me. I think it's because, again, I was very protective of myself and had professional supports. And in the time that I was, I was away from work about a year. And then year and about six months afterwards, starting back part-time, I found that when I was starting to speak about this and write these things down and, and, and each time that I would come back to tell the story, um, I found it hugely like a milestone for me. A very, it was almost, a, I don't journal, but it was a way of journaling my progress in some way. Part of my coming back and recovering has been to take on this role of advocating for mental health awareness within the legal profession using myself as an example of someone who was able to survive and hopefully thrive (laughs) from what might be like the most extraordinary and unlikely event right that one could but but I talk about oftentimes with, with lawyers is that it's not foreseeable that we are all going to experience something that you talk about big t small t traumas Myrna but Um, loss of a loved one, end of a relationship, end of a career, elder care, um, personal illness. Like these are things that we know are likely going to happen to us or to someone we know. And so we have to put these, um, um, it's not necessarily as extraordinary as what happened to me in this like kind of moment, but, but it, 
has the same effect, the traumatizing effect on us. So tr I try to make the case for people to care more about themselves and be more compassionate with themselves and be kinder to themselves. I think your question was about, though, um, you know, my identity coming back as a, as a person that ha has had this happen to them. And, you know, people have asked me, well, you know, do I feel like I'm treated differently or people treat me differently? Um, I don't know. I know I treat myself differently. Absolutely. Um, I am far more kinder to myself, far less judgmental. Sometimes it's amazing that some of these limits that I have now have actually provided me a lot of freedom. And that's just unfortunately something I probably could have worked on with some therapy beforehand and didn't need this quite this this unfortunate experience to have um, you know given me the insight but um, I hear a lot of the things that make lawyers anxious and cause them a lot of fretting and, and a lot of unhappiness and I I wish people could see that you know with a little bit of work and insight that they're and planning I mean um, and, and and attention to yourself you know carving out some time for yourself I think people, you know, we talk about space. People don't give themselves space. Just go from one thing to another thing, from one family member to another commitment, to volunteer commitments, to work commitments. And they never give space to themselves and their phones. You get sucked into your, your phones as a distraction. Being truly alone is a very challenging thing to do, but we're going to have to be alone. Like I was alone in that those moments before, you know, the ambulance came and I knew... I, there was a moment where I realized I was bleeding and it occurred to me like, cause it was, I was bleeding from my neck and I was, I told you, I felt I had got it. Right. And I remember thinking there's a chance that I might bleed to death. <laughs> and it, it dawned on me at that moment that this would might be the last moment. And I realized how alone I was. And I don't mean it alone in a terrible, scary way, but I felt alone and I don't know if I was ready. I, I can't remember. I just remember understanding that it's important now to feel to, to, to know what being alone is and to feel comfortable with being alone. And and um, for me, I think, you know, this, I, this overburdened people time and fear, you know, it's, it's frightening to be alone with your thoughts and to have to make decisions about your life and so on and so forth. And I think that's people why people avoid it, to be honest. And it's come up a lot in COVID, actually. You know, we've had some webinars and, and meetings with, you know, especially women lawyers. And some people are feeling like, thank God, I've got all this time all of a sudden, you know, all these meetings got canceled and finally I've got time. And some people who feel like they don't know who they are because without those things, they're, they've got no identity, right? So I think we got to get better at creating some space because if you're not the lawyer, if you're not mom, if you're not sister or grandma, um, you got to know who you are. And if you if you don't know who you are, you're you're going to get drawn into places where you're going to lose your boundaries with others, and you don't have boundaries because you don't need to protect anything. I don't know, Marna. I'm sorry. Like I could probably. Go That's okay. On. Well, then going back to that uh, whole piece about like who you yeah. are, um, identity. How do you feel about being known, you know, as the lawyer who was blown up? Like, is that a part of your identity that you have now adopted? Does, is it tr like re-triggering -trigger, re or re-traumatizing? Is it a piece that you'd like to have left somewhere else in the past? Or do you feel neutral about it? I feel neutral about it. I'm not sure why. I probably have to work on that and try to 
to kind of sort that out a bit more. I'm not sure why. I remember one of my friends telling me, you know, when I started making the decision to talk about this and to to do advocacy within the profession and, and, and talk about these things that you and I are talking about. She, she's like, you have to be careful. You're not Malala, right? Or she, she called it Malalaing, you know, and that this need, feeling this need to have to fix things and tell people and to be some kind of spokesperson for it. And I, I think about that a lot. And, you know, saying yes to doing uh, talks about this and putting it all out there and trying to be that person, perhaps that might kind of shake someone up to wake up and, and, and to maybe be a role model. And I find that burdensome sometimes, actually a lot of times. And I feel disappointed too, because I, I, I know that in many ways, I'm healthier now than I was before. And I just sometimes wish that my colleagues could see how much they could benefit from acknowledging some certain difficult things. Um, I, I, I don't mind, I think, Myrna, to answer your question about being identified as that, because it, it does give me an opportunity, I think, to connect with people or if they want to hear, or they're intrigued by it to, I guess, for me to push my agenda, which is, no, no, you don't just bounce back from something like this. You need to get some therapy and you got to get help, you know, and you got to do it early and you got to work on it. Uh, that's my real agenda um, is to tell lawyers they have to be vulnerable and that they should be honest with themselves. And if they think that they can take care of other people's problems and avoid their own, then they're mistaken. That I love that you're using <laughs> this label or this new identity as a means to like educate and to build awareness and to make space for these conversations that lawyers usually don't make space for, but that they need to make space for. Let me ask you this question before we run out of time today, because I want to really, I'm curious about what this experience was for you. When this individual had sent the, uh, the bomb to your office, as well as your client and his former lawyer, he eventually had been charged with, he had, was it three charges of attempted murder? And he was tried through his prosecution you had the opportunity to show up and uh, present your victim impact statement. I think that that is a very, as a former Crown, I know exactly what it takes for people to be able to do that work, to put words to their experience. But I think as lawyers, we probably never think of like put ourselves in, in, in that position and think about what that would be like. So as a lawyer having to experience that, what was that experience like for you? I have to say that I felt compelled to do it. I, I felt that, you know, I feel very strongly that, you know, victims and survivors of violence have, have a right to be heard, you know. And here I am, an unlikely person found myself in a place where I am a survivor and a victim. I don't know, I can use those words. I don't, those words are interchangeable sometimes, but I still am, don't mind viewing it as being a victim as well. And I think I'm both. Um, but um, I felt compelled to do it because I believe in the process. And I believe that the court should hear from everyone who didn't have opportunities before. So it was important for me to do it. I also respect the fact that the others chose not to. I thought it might be of assistance to the court. 
And I also understood that there was a lot of public interest in me and what happened to me and support, Myrna. I mean, it was extraordinary, the amount of support that I'd received from everyone in the community, from lawyers across the country. Um, and I knew in a way that, that I uh, didn't have an opportunity to be heard throughout the process. I was, you know, I gave my evidence and when I had to, and I was cross-examined when I had to be, but very artificial, you know, it's a very interesting thing to be a lawyer sitting in a witness box. I, I felt out of place. Like I understood my role, but it just was very surreal to me and humbling and an experience I'll never forget of what it feels like to be part of a process that you have no control over. And even when you're being asked questions on direct, it's still not a process you have control over, you know, it's not really your story. It's still being kind of um, extracted from you in a way. I just remember that that part of it is very different than what I expected it to be. So then when it, when I had a chance to do the victim impacts, I mean, all of which to say, I, I thought it was important because I didn't get to be heard. On the other hand, I hated it. I hated doing it. I hated writing it. I hated that I had to describe my pain. I had to describe how it felt, what it felt, what I saw in my family, what my wounds were like, because there's actually a form and it kind of gives you headings, you know, emotional impact, physical impact, you know. And, and so I approached it very clinically and I looked at the form and I said, okay, what can I say about these topics? I hated that he had to hear it and that I had to say it in front of the person who perpetrated these harms on me and others. And it was um, difficult. It, it was difficult because I didn't want to give him that satisfaction of knowing my pain, right? However, I have to say to you, and I said it in the courtroom, I actually don't think about him very much at all. I can forget about it. I, I knew as a process, like, I mean, it comes up from time to time, but I feel that I... Um, have had the supports I needed to move through what had happened and to put that person, he's like a footnote in my life, you know, and I wanted him to know that he would be a footnote in my life and that I wouldn't be affected beyond what I described in my victim's impact statement. One thing that I identified too, Myrna, and this is long before I had the vocabulary about, you know, tra being trauma informed was one of the difficult things that I hadn't expected about being a victim was how my partner and my friends and my family experienced what happened and how, you know, I'm in control of my own pain, my own experience, but the anger, the hurt, the pain that others go through and the way they describe their trauma to me is something that's a burden that I had to carry. And I felt guilty about in many ways, the women at my office, like who comes to work? thinking that some, you know, your coworker is going to get blown up and you're going to be sitting there in the aftermath of having seen that and witnessed that and the things that I didn't have to see. And that was something that I talked about in my victim impact statement because it's bad enough being a victim, but to have to carry the other, all the, the rest of it with you is, is something I thought the court should know about too, that there's more than one victim when something like this happens. It's really powerful because I've heard the same things 
stated uh, time and time again, particularly when I've talked to victims of sexual violence, where there were witnesses to the act of like of sexual violence and how sometimes it was the witnesses who could not get past mm-hmm. the trauma of what they witnessed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the victim who seemed to be able to recover a lot right. more quickly. Um, And so I think that that is so important. And I think I might have to have you back again, Rita, to talk about (laughs) what's a better way to like, engage victims in um, sharing their experience, because I don't like this clinical way. And I'm familiar with that form and the topics. And it's just so inhumane in so many and have... There's so many things about the process I don't like. It's hard. I struggled with it too, in the sense that it's careful what you wish for. You know, you want a victim to have a voice, but then that ability, like, there's such a risk of more harm to be done when you are. It's it's it, it, it's a really tough one, I think, and I never really paid attention to it because you know it's not really not the kind of work I was doing until I started to write my own victim impact statement. I thought, gosh, if I'm struggling with this. And I have the supports and I'm privileged and I have psychologists and therapists and, and a family that's supporting me. And I have friends who are supporting me, the community behind me, and I'm struggling. I can't, I, I, I was heart sick thinking about how many victims who have nothing and no one and no ability to be supported, you know, are, are being faced with something like this. Yeah, totally. And I also think about all of those victims who don't even understand really like the inner workings of the court system or the justice system or see themselves as having a role in that system because of uh, historical experiences or a lack of understanding. Yeah, there's so many things that I have issues with and maybe one by one I'll be able to start addressing those things and saying here's a better way and here's something we need to know and yeah you're right like the whole uh, victim impact statement process can really uh, serve to uh, re-victimize people in so many ways and and who is it for really uh, who like who is that process for yeah anyway I have lots of thoughts but I want to talk <laughs> I want to close our conversation talking about like how you and I met. I came in to do a, a short little presentation for, I think it was the Manitoba Law Society and there were members of the Manitoba Bar. After I did this little thing, me and my grandson River, <laughs> um, trauma-informed lawyering, you called me, we had this awesome conversation. And now, you know, you've had me come back to do a similar presentation for the young lawyers section. It got me thinking about how involved and active, I guess, you must have become in certain conversations. And let's talk about the work you're doing around that with lawyers uh, and younger lawyers and why. Part of it, I think I covered before, you know, this agenda that I have, because I realized that the answer to the question that everybody wants is, you know, how, how did you come back? And how did you um, why, how, why are you so resilient? Right. And, and, um, the resilience in, in my view comes from being healthy and, um, <laughs> healthy in a very broad context. And, and it really aligns with a lot of the work that we're seeing in, in, in well-being awareness and education, you know, the idea of being spiritually, um, physically, um, emotionally, 
an intellectually healthy um, as a person and as a lawyer, right? I think that shared experience is something that resonates with people. And I believe that sharing experiences is a way of connecting and building relationships. And I heard lots of people say that the practice of laws changed so much where more senior lawyers will say, you know, we had a lot more um, connection with each other. We had more mentorship. No one was at it alone, right? And I think the practice has changed for many reasons. I don't, people are feeling kind of very alone, right, in practice. And so I think that by sharing experience and building connections and relationships, I think that's number one, where we can try to um, build a healthier legal profession um, and a community. It's so funny, Myrna. I'm always constantly struggling how we as lawyers are the ones who are up to speed on the latest research and data when you're working on a client's case and certainly in a wrongful dismissal or any of these kind of workplace issues where people are being harassed or feeling otherwise, you know, um, her facing challenges. And yet we can't look at our own workplaces with the same analysis that we do for our clients. And it just, it boggles my mind. And um, I think it's more than just the business case. You know, there is the arguments that the model works the way it works because there's money to be had and nobody wants to change things because you tough it out in the front end as a junior and eventually you'll reap the rewards. But we know that that's not a model that is um, open or accessible to most people, especially women and other people of diverse backgrounds. So it's, it's going to change and it's going to have to change. And I think waiting for that to happen is, is, is useless. And I think we have to empower the young lawyers to be able to have these conversations or teach them how to have them or to say these things that need to be said. So, you know, I love the work that you're doing on trauma. I think it's probably the root of a lot of the issues around lawyer mental health um, problems. I want people to find the joy of being a lawyer again, what it is that drew you to law school and why, you know, that people maybe can have it all. I don't know, maybe too optimistic, Myrna, but. <laughs> I don't, I don't think so. I think that's awesome. Because as I said to you earlier, I believe in possibilities and I believe yeah. in having it all. And, you know, if you were to have a conversation with young lawyers about, you know, your hopes for the future of this profession, I'm thinking, yeah. of course, of your partner's experience and mm-hmm. how I, I'm sure in retrospect, a lot of that could have been identified and prevented. 100%. 100%. The taboo of not talking about a colleague who's struggling, you know, the red flags that I saw that I now know <laughs> were red flags. And, I, and I'm not blaming only myself. I mean, there are so many others. You know, we, we talk about how you talk about these things. One topic that came up when we did a, a with the Bar Association is a, um, we did a CPD on suicide prevention and how not to be a bystander, right? I mean, that's a very challenging, difficult topic for a lot of us, but we all know that the legal profession were the highest risk um, for lawyers to die by suicide than any other profession. And um, not being a bystander and and not but not being equipped with the language and the understanding of this emotional first aid that we should have to speak to our colleagues when we are are seeing flags um, I think applying some of that um, to just day-to-day 
um, checking in with our colleagues and people we work with within our firms. I think there's a responsibility of uh, within the firms to and, and legal organizations, and that's just going to limit it to firms. But to ensure that you know mental health is not just doing a lunchtime yoga class, you know, or doing a birthday party or something for someone like that, that we are looking at it as a competence issue, Myrna, and, and that's a lot of it, your work is, is, is highlighting that. And, and I believe that to be a competent lawyer, you have to be a healthy, healthy lawyer. And it may be recognizing, you know, the way trauma acts on you and your clients, but it's also, I think, even and broader than that as the, the work is demanding, right? It, it, it is demanding and it takes up so much of us often will overtake us. And I think that's where people start to find themselves at risk. Part of it, I think, is having peer support and a peer group. And, and that's where I think, I think peer support is more preventative, though, than I think it is a response to people who are potentially moving into areas where they're engaging in riskier behaviors. I think once you get past a certain point, <laughs> you need intervention from professionals. But I think a peer support is a good place to start destigmatizing, normalizing, you know, conversations, putting this type of work that you're doing in a curriculum early on is necessary. I think it's necessary to educate though the, the leaders of organizations. What's the point of having, you know, a lunchtime yoga class or a wellness room if the leaders aren't going to do it? Or it's probably more damaging, actually, in hindsight. So you'd asked me about what I'm doing. And so part of it is conversations, whether it's on a small level, doing some CPDs with the MBA, um, the wellness liaison with the um, uh, CBA uh, wellness subcommittee. Um, I'm also on a, on a committee with the Law Society of Manitoba right now. The president has um, uh, struck a special committee to look at lawyer um, well-being. Um, and that's where I want to go. I, I think, though, whenever you want to affect some change, um, we can talk and we can ha have conversations on this level um, as much as we want with like-minded people who join my CPD that I organize, right? But I think it's incumbent on our regulators, um, our educators, the ones who are uh, like the law schools, um, even the court. And, and that's, that's maybe something we can come back to if we have some time. But um, the court, the law school, and the law societies, let's just say the Bar Association, we're, we're, we're sold. Like we're, we're doing this work on the bar level. We are recognizing that our, our we want to be healthier, happier lawyers. But I think that um, our regulators need to do more to recognize these competency issues and provide the supports and destigmatize both in like the, you know, complaints and discipline process, but doing preemptive work with organizations, with lawyers and with the public. You know, I... I understand and I accept that the mandate of, mandate of our law societies are to protect the public, but the public's well served with a healthy, healthy, uh, healthy membership of lawyers who can practice in a way that's um, safe. And so by supporting lawyers, you're going to pr protect the public. And I, I really, I think more has to be done there because the law society has the power to create change amongst organizations that might be slow to voluntarily do those things themselves. So that's why I'm thrilled that you're going to be doing work with the law society to do some training. I'm thrilled that they are looking to um, put lawyer well-being, you know, on the agenda with this committee. 
I, I do think, though, that, um, you know, like-minded people like us can be supportive and do the peer work that needs to be done, but systematically and institutionally, um, there, there are ways that will work much quicker and better than I think we, not we, <laughs> I mean, I can do uh, by being, you know, the MBA <laughs> wellness rep. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just a person, right? I'm not an expert. I just know from my own experience and from the education I've received and the awareness that I've had that all this is here for us to access and the data is there and the other, you know, work is being done all over the place, not just, you know, in Canada um, on these issues. I'm no expert either. I just... I just share what I've learned um, and the mistakes that I made that I've learned from. I just share it through the podcast and other means in the hopes that it's going to help someone think about how they engage, how they avoid, how they cope, how they adapt, um, how they overcome and, uh, and how we need to make space for more of these conversations. And I think what you said about making mistakes is huge. I think that we have to start talking about making mistakes because I think that's the greatest fear that every student leaves, you know, who gets called to the bar once getting out into the workplace and to um, practice. What if I make a mistake? They're terrified of making a mistake and already traumatized by making a mistake without having made a mistake and they're going to make mistakes. Right. And, 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 and we are human and we make mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes. And the standard that we hold ourselves to and what, how we can, what, how we view ourselves um, is, is something that we do have to have more conversations around. There's not enough representation of the reality of who we are as players in this profession. We have the image, but we don't have enough real stories and it's the real stories that's where the magic is the magic is in the reality that's right and everyone has a real story everybody I I meet in in my work uh, my colleagues um anyone I've gotten to know there's 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 real stories there that that it, it, it it's it's shocking to me that um we can have these personal relationships and yet there's still this myth of other people who I don't and it starts in law school too you know it starts with the idea that you're looking around and you're feeling like an imposter and that everybody knows more than you do and then you know we see everybody's grades go I'm like oh well everybody's as dumb as I am right like (laughs) oh yet somehow you still think you're the dumbest in the class even though you know that everyone's in the same place right so it's just the the tricks that we play um on ourselves to perpetuate our own myths about why we're not good enough, right? Yeah, what are the stories that we tell ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. It's really, yeah. it's such a powerful, it's such a powerful question we all need to be asking ourselves. And I just, I, I want to conclude our, our conversation today by just saying, you know, thank you for sharing your stories with me. But also, like, thank you for calling me that day that kicked this all off because I loved how in that 20 minute conversation we had, you shared with me a real story. And honestly, I really have no time for any stories that aren't deeply real and meaningful. And you just, there was no messing around about like, oh, let's talk about this in, in these like theoretical <laughs> terms. Terms. It was like, this is what happened. Let's talk about this for a second. And let's talk about trauma in the profession. And I was like, yes, 
These are the conversations I want to have because this is the reality. And this is the thing that tends to drive people out of the profession um, or, or drive people further into isolation. And so thank you for being you and for sharing this story of, you know, coming through something really, really hard uh, and coming back into the profession with a renewed sense of um, mission or purpose and doing all the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for gathering these stories. Being the gatherer of people's stories and traumas is is not easy. And um, we are heard, people like me are heard through the work of people like you. So thank you for your tireless work to have this platform for these stories to be heard. That's my show for today, folks. Take care of yourselves. This episode was recorded on the traditional, ancestral, unceded territories of the Squamish people. This larger territory is shared between the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam people. 